just kind of reorient us here because we have been in a series on Mark, and what I'm doing is basically preaching through Mark, but the way I'm doing it is just kind of going a chapter at a time, and I really only have time to pick out what we're going to do, pretty much a chapter a week, a story out of each chapter each week, and we're going to have to skip a chapter or two here because of the cancellation we had a couple weeks ago, and we had some missionaries come and share with us, but we're going to hit a lot of the gospel of Mark, and, and one of the reasons we're going through Mark is because it's in the Bible, right? It's a good thing to teach the Bible, but um, something that I told you when we started this is, is Mark is probably the oldest gospel that we have written down, and Mark was a friend of Peter. Peter was Jesus' best friend, and so what we have is probably Peter's testimony here written down of, of Jesus' life, and uh, the story is really important to us as Christians. The story I'm, I'm going to read to you this morning uh, not a, I'm not going to give you a lot of introduction. It's a really interesting story, and I hope that you can kind of follow me as I read it, and it's in your notes. What you'll discover is that a God-fearing man named John is, is beheaded. Um, he is beheaded because what we're going to discover is that uh, there is a leader who um, divorces his wife to marry his brother's wife, and he's having a party where he's having, and he has some of his leaders and governors and um, and uh, 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 military officials there. And he actually then is having his stepdaughter basically do a striptease um, for them and dance in front of them. Uh, and then kind of at the end of this, we discover that the reason that John has his head chopped off is because the leader's wife is the one who asks for this to be done. One last interesting thing uh, about this story is that if you read through the Gospel of Mark, this is the only story that Jesus is not in. Um, so I, I find that relatively interesting for what it's worth. I'm going to read out of the um, New Living Translation uh, this morning. I usually read out of the uh, <coughs> ESV, but I find sometimes the New Living Translation a little easier to read narrative out of. And so if you can follow along here um, with me, uh, I hope you will. So Mark chapter 6, verse 17, I'll read through verse 19. For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, It is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But without Herod's approval, she was powerless. For Herod respected John, and knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. Herodias' chances finally came on Herod's birthday. He gave a party for his high government officials, army officers, and leading citizens of Galilee. Then his daughter, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance that greatly, dis that greatly pleased Herod and his guest. Ask me anything you like, the king said to the girl, and I will give it to you. He even vowed, I will give you whatever you ask, up to half of my kingdom. So she went and asked her mother, what should I ask for? Her mother told her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl hurried back to the king and told him, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. Then the king deeply regretted what he said because of the vows he had made in front of his guest. He couldn't refuse her. So immediately he sent an executioner to prison to cut off John's head and to bring it to him. The soldiers beheaded John in prison, brought his head on a tray, and gave it to the girl, who took it to her mother. Once John's disciples heard what had happened, 
They came to get the body and buried it in a tomb. Let me pray real quick. Father, this morning, we, as we look at this, we realize that we should not just treat you as Savior, but we should treat you as Lord. And I hope that we can um, see at least that this morning as we look at this text. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to answer um, a question for us as we look at this. Why was John imprisoned and why was he killed? And I want to point out that John was imprisoned and that he was killed quite simply uh, because he was different from the culture and the leaders of that culture in basically three ways. John was radically different from the culture and the leaders of the culture and in three ways. So I've given you this outline in your notes. You're not going to take a whole lot of notes. I only have one thing I actually want you to write down, but you can follow along. First and foremost, John was radically different in his lifestyle. John was a very simple man. Uh, we are told in Mark 1.6 that John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. We know John kind of went off to do his own thing, but he was a great teacher. John didn't go off by himself, but he went off to live a simple life. Yet, his teaching was very powerful, so powerful, in fact, that people would come to hear him teach and preach. Jesus himself went to John and would listen to John's teaching. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Now, this is very interesting. Jesus is, is probably kind of the hottest teacher on the circuit at this point in time, and yet Jesus goes to John the Baptist to listen to his teaching and preaching. And you would think it would be really easy for John probably to get caught up in his own success, um, his own ability to preach and teach. But John wasn't concerned with that. John was concerned with the calling on his life to live simply and to simply please God. Now, what does this mean for you? This doesn't necessarily mean that you in your life are need to retreat. Some of you would starve, right? If you didn't live next to Walmart, you'd starve. Um, just be honest with yourself. Right? You're, and you're not going to eat locusts. You would refuse to. Um, but the truth is, is that many of us, we do need to simplify our lives, right? We need to simplify our lives to please God. Some of us are trying to live as extravagantly as we can, right? Uh, I find this really interesting. I read this the other day that, you know, the homes in our own country continue to get bigger and bigger, but our families get smaller and smaller. And the likelihood that we will invite our neighbor or friends or people in the church over to our bigger homes has decreased. And so what we are doing, right, as a culture is that we are building bigger homes and we're actually filling them with more stuff, and the Bible promises us that more stuff will not make us happy, but rather we're going to get the greatest amount of contentment out of godliness and being with other people. And I think some of us, we need to, to kind of rediscover this. We are told um, in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, and I'm going to move over to verse 8, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. John simplified his life not simply to live a simple life. God simplified his life so that he could focus on God. Timothy goes, or Paul goes on to say, who wrote to Timothy here, if we had food, food and clothing, and with that we will be content. And, and so I'm just curious, right? Ask yourself, can you say that about yourself? Are you content with the, the clothes on your back and the food that we readily have available to us? Right? If not, I'll just encourage you, right, to, 
to live a little more simply. Well, how do you do that? Jeremiah speaks into this a little bit. In Jeremiah 6.16, he says this. He says, this is what the Lord says. His people have kind of gotten off track. And he says, you stand at the crossroads and look. In other words, you stand at these spiritual crossroads. You, you feel kind of spiritually empty here. And so you're standing at this road, um, and you're trying to go one way or the other. And I believe it was Yogi Berra who said, if you stand at a fork in a road, take it, right? But the, the, the question then is, where are you going to go? And here's what Jeremiah said. He said, ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your soul. And so if you're struggling, what Jeremiah says is look at the ancient paths. And what Jeremiah means by this, I believe, isn't necessarily like old-time religion or the good old days, whatever that might look like or feel like to you, but simply practices that help the preservation of your soul and the formation of your heart. And so for us, this is really simple. Right? It's a return. It's a return to a heartfelt desire for the scriptures to be a light into your path and a, and a lamp unto your feet. And if you're here this morning, it's a good start because you know that I'm going to teach the scriptures and we're hopefully going to absorb them and let them influence your heart. It's to pray. It's to meditate. It's to have some time to think outside of Sunday morning, to pray outside of Sunday morning, to be with God outside Sunday morning, to be with yourself, right, outside of Sunday morning. It's to live in community with other people. It's to know your neighbor. It's to know the people in your church. It's to know your coworkers and so forth. That's, that's the ancient way that's going on here. And, and, and John retreated, right, not just to simply retreat, but to seek God. And that was how, one of the ways that he was radically different. But I will tell you this, is that is not why John ends up in prison, right? John ends up in prison here because he's radically different in these next two ways. And here's the first, and what he taught, and what John taught. Now, so what did John teach? Uh, John's point of, the point of John, of every single uh, that we can see of John's messages was very simple. It was that you should repent. John's message was always a message of repentance. I believe that if John were to show up here today and he would begin to preach to you as the church, and if he were up here, he would preach that message over and over and over again. It was just a really, that was, that was John's message. The message of repentance assumes that we all have sin in our life or that there'll be people here that have blatant sin in their lives that they need to turn from. It's a call to change your life around, to turn your life around, to change your heart, to change your mind. And this is what John was always calling everybody to. This is what all of John's messages were about. And, and John did this, by the way, to two basic groups of people that would include all of us. The first is that John called those who were a part of kind of a God-fearing community to repentance. John called believers to repentance. In Matthew 3, we see this in verses 7 and 9. It says, when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees. So the Pharisees and Sadducees are coming to John, who have retreated here, to watch him baptize people. And guess what he did? He denounced them. Now, I, I was thinking that like, he obviously didn't read Dale Carnegie's um, how, to, how to Make Friends and Influence People here. Right? This, is, this is how he follows. He says, you bro, bro, brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you from the wrath to come? Prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe because we are descendants of Abraham. And so what 
uh, John here is telling people, he says, you can't depend on your family, right? You can't depend on your education, your church attendance. None of that actually makes you a person who is following God in any moment of time. What makes you a person who is following God in any moment in time is your willingness to repent. You know, one of the things I found odd, too, is like he doesn't give reasons why. Like, I like to every once in a while in a sermon, like, I'll give a couple reasons why it's better to follow Jesus or, or better to apply the scriptures of your life. Like, there's no, like, here's 10 reasons why you should repent. It's just, you should repent because your life doesn't line up with what the scriptures say is basically what John is getting at. And he's saying, if you're not living this kind of life, right, you're not actually following the God that you proclaim to follow. And so John calls those who claim to follow God to repentance, but God, John also calls those who are far from God to repentance, In Luke 3, 14, we see him do this, or we see the expression of this, for it says this, then some soldiers asked him, we can assume that these are Roman soldiers because they weren't really Jewish soldiers because they were occupied, they were an occupied people. And so so some soldiers came to John and they asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. And so John has a basic message of repentance here. And he doesn't even explain to the soldiers what they should repent of before he comes to them. He's just got a basic message of repentance to come to God. You have to repent. And these men just come. So what do we need to repent of? If that's what it takes to follow God is repentance. And he says, be honest in your business dealings, right? Don't take advantage of people. And so he kind of calls them out. Uh, and here's something I just want us to think about. Like, if repentance is offensive, because I think it might be kind of a basically kind of offensive message to many of us, John himself, right, is an equal opportunity offender. Right? He, he's not, he doesn't really care who he offends. He's going to offend people inside the church. He's going to offend people outside of the church. And it's this message of repentance, actually, actually, this message is what puts him in jail, Right? John is just going to call a spade a spade. He's just going to call it what it is. And John acknowledges the sin of Herod and Herodias here, and he becomes then a political prisoner. This is what John is. Now, I want to give you a little background here on what actually took place. We don't have a ton of biblical information. We've got a little bit extra biblical information on this. But before Herod went to marry Herodias, and go ahead and put the map up here because I'm going to I got this little laser pointer right here, Ryan. There you go. Um, watch your eyes. Burns your eyes. Um, but before Herod married Herodias, basically what he had to do is he had to divorce himself or separate um, from King Aretas, the fourth's daughter. So King Aretas here um, basically kind of was king of this region. This Herod that we're talking about, um, Herod Antipas, He controlled this region here and this region here. And so he had to divorce a lady whose father basically ruled this area over here. Now, when I married Emily, her dad um, told me that I wasn't allowed to bring her back. Uh, I don't... (laughs) I'm not sure what he meant by that, but... (laughs) They probably had the same agreement right there. And Herod and Herodias are basically, they're probably a little um, hesitant here because what could happen is it could cause kind of a political upheaval, right? If John continues to say, hey, this divorce shouldn't happen. 
And not only that, but if you read the text, pay attention to the text closely, um, Herodias is mad because John is actually um, talking not just about divorce in general, but John is, is speaking to a, a particular thing that went on, and that Herod, who, this Herod that owns this region and this region, took the brother who owns this, of wife who owns this region, who basically rules over this region. Philip, his brother, rules over this region. And in Leviticus, it's told not only that right, we shouldn't divorce our wife or our husband or anything like that, but it actually teaches that we shouldn't marry our brother's wives. Seems like a reasonable law um, to me, or at least good advice, right? If you have siblings, um, that is not encouraged. And so what's going on here is that John the Baptist, I'm going to read a little more here in this sermon than I do typically, but John the Baptist has called Herod and Herodias out on this. John's preaching deemed this divorce and remarriage immoral. We don't exactly know what John said in totality, but we know that he taught this much, that John didn't approve and he had a lot of followers. So Herod imprisoned him to make sure, basically, Herod and Herodias imprisoned him to make sure that John couldn't continue to preach this to the masses, that he couldn't continue to call um, Herod out on this. Uh, one commentator put it like this, that John's preaching became politically explosive. John Calvin commented uh, on this, on this uh, message here. He said, behold, in John, and he's talking about John the Baptist, an illustrious example of, moral cor- uh, of that moral cor- courage which all pious teachers ought to possess, not to hesitate to incur the wrath of the great and powerful as often as it may be found necessary. For he with whom there is acceptance of persons do not honestly serve God. Now let me translate that for you. In other words, John Calvin was saying, John the Baptist as a preacher and teacher, Scripture has more moral authority and he feared God more than he feared men even if that man had the power to put him in jail and take his life. John Calvin believed that the mark of a true Christian teacher is the one whose desire is to serve God above all else, even right, if his head is going to be put on the chopping block. Now, what's interesting is that Herod was actually willing to put up with John, and Herodias was to a certain extent, as long as, as, long as John couldn't preach to the masses. He seemed to bring John out of, out of prison even occasionally to teach him personally, but he didn't want John teaching others. Herod found him amusing to listen to, and we are told that he was personally afraid to kill John. Herod's goal was simple, to keep John's message from going mainstream. On the other hand, his wife Herodias hated John and hated John's message. She did not like John's message of repentance one bit. Herod refused to repent. Herodias hated the message to begin with. So what does this mean for you? Right? Quite simply, if we take kind of this message in con- context, I think one of the things that we can learn here is that we live in a culture that is similar to this, where sexual norms that the Christian faith uh, adheres to is no longer popular. Uh, I've only asked you really to write one thing down in, in this message um, and this is something that is just, I, I continue to try to get Christians to kind of just understand and almost be okay with to a certain extent. Not to be okay with because we want it to be this way, uh, but, but because we need to be ready, we need to be, we need to be willing to live with this. Is, 
that the Christian message is no longer mainstream. The Christian message is no longer mainstream. And this is very true when it comes to sexuality. Some might be amused by it and others deplore it, but for the most part, it is no longer mainstream. The culture in our country has changed concerning these issues. I'll spare you the statistics of people who believe that it's okay to have sex outside of marriage, cohabitate, and that divorce should be easy, or that uh, marriage isn't just between man and a woman. But the truth is, is that most people no longer believe that those are right and godly expressions of sex or romantic love. Our scriptures, on the other how, on the other case, <clears throat> excuse me, do not teach this to be the case. You may be thrown in, you're, you're probably not going to be thrown in jail, you're not going to be beheaded for what you believe, uh, but you will find yourself alienated from time to time if you are sticking to the basic Christian message on these issues and a whole bunch of other issues. Now, this makes a lot of people uncomfortable, right? Some of you grew up in a time where the basic Christian method was respected by many. And I, I believe that that's no longer generally true. People may not have been convictional Christians, and what I mean by that is they may not have attended churches, they may not have applied the scriptures to their life, they may not have wanted to live genuinely for Jesus, right? But they at least honored many of the traditions and beliefs that Christians espoused on sexuality and a lot of other issues. This being the case, Christians making moral claims and calling people to repentance at one time was expected. Now it's demonized. We, however, shouldn't be lived in that kind of culture. Peter wrote to the Roman church, and this is what he told them. He said, beloved, check this out. He said, you are, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So what Peter tells Christians is he's, he's saying that you, you may have been born in the land that you are at, or you may have been there for a really long time, but here's the deal right? You're going to feel like foreigners. You're going to feel like exiles. You're going to feel like sojourners. You're going to feel out of place. And he says, keep the good fight. Like, don't give up. Don't stop. Don't stop living as you should in front of those who aren't going to believe. So there's actually a war for your soul going on. So how do we show it, right? We have to keep our conduct pure among the Gentiles. Basically, all Peter means is live right in front of unbelievers. When it comes to the issues of sex or whatever, honor your marriages, right? Honor them. Love your husband. Love your spouse, If you love your girlfriend, marry her. Don't ask her to move in with you, right? Girls, if he loves you, he'll ask you to marry him, right? right? Think about it, like, if he really lo- that means he wants to live with you for the rest of his life. If he really wants to do that, he will ask you to marry him. I promise you. If he's unsure of that, he won't. Get rid of your pornography. Do whatever you have to do. Throw the computer out the window. I, you know, get, have some help. Resist the urge to try to be like everybody else. We, 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 sh- we as a church have to get comfortable right, being sojourners and exiles. Other translations put it aliens. So the third thing that is going to get John killed is simply courage. John was fearless in who he taught all this to. John knew that his message would get him in trouble. He wasn't an idiot. 
And yet he, he spoke out against Herod, and he spoke out what Herod was up to right, on purpose. He knew it was going to get him in trouble, and he tied it anyways. Uh, this is, I, I'm trying, you know, I was trying as I was looking through this, like how does this apply to you? Because you're not a prophet, you're not a pastor, your primary ministry probably isn't a ministry of teaching and speaking up in front of people, and that's okay. I, I do actually believe that that's a specific calling. I think all of us should share the gospel with our friends, our family members, and so forth. But as there are certain people are ordained, sent out, trained um, for that sort of thing. Um, but I, I began to think about this, and so what, what's kind of a basic application for you? And the basic application for you is that you should actually seek out teachers that want to call people to repentance and that are willing to do that. We should all be reminded that Jesus' first public words as a preacher and teacher was simply repent. Right? You, can, you can check me on that. We started in Mark with that. It's in Matthew with that. It's repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? So, in other words, you should want a little bit, at least, of John the Baptist in your preacher or in your teacher or in anybody that you're going to follow that's going to teach the scriptures. All pastors should sound a little bit like him. Now, they're going to sound a little different, too, because they have different personalities. They're speaking to different cultures. Right? So, so, it's going to change. They're not, you're not going to read John the Baptist, right? I'm probably not going to call people a bunch of brood of snakes. It'd be weird. Or any pastor to call those who don't follow Jesus to repentance. It should be expected that I teach things that are not culturally accepted or mainstream. You should want a pastor who welcomes people who don't believe, but who is also honest with them about what the, te- what the scriptures teach about their unbelief. I'm not saying that you should want a mean pastor, although I'm reminded of a former um, self-described gangbanger who I went to seminary with, and he looked me in the eyes one day, and uh, he said, Josh, I like my gospel mean. (laughs) Yeah, hold on a second. I, uh, I think what he meant is that he wanted pastors to call out sins, and the effects of sin um, and its destructive and, and damning qualities of it. But I just laughed at him. And so, awesome, man. Second, right. you should want me to call those inside of the church to repentance. This includes you. Right. Uh, I want to let you on a secret. This is a well-known secret among pastors, right? You may even already know it. But pastors generally aren't afraid of people outside of the church. The world will be the world. Jesus implies that if we aren't persecuted by the world, we probably aren't following him. So being alienated by people outside of the church is expected to a certain degree. Like, we're not looking for it. We're not looking for it. But it is more painful to be alienated by people inside of the church. This is because people inside of the church are those who often consider themselves friends and family members even, even just a family of God, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ to the pastor or preacher or teacher or whatever may be the case. This being the case, most pastors are more afraid of saying hard things to the people inside of their own churches. And I'll be honest with you, right? This is true for me. It's It's true. I'm more afraid of people inside of our church when I preach than those outside of our church. And since John is calling out a ruler, and since our culture here, right, so I'm just going to contextualize this for you, John calls out Herod and Herodias. 
the, the, one of the rulers in the areas in which he does ministry, right? And I think I'm not stepping out of bounds here to say that we are so, so politically divided right now, so I'm going to take a cue from, our, from the text and our own culture and speak into that right now. One of the reasons that I am a lot of, and a lot of pastors are, are afraid of their own churches are simply because many of us believe that people in our own churches are more committed to people like Rush Limbaugh, Ben Shapiro, Sean Hannity, and Fox News in general, right, than to the gospel. Or how about this? They're more committed to Rachel Maddow, Oprah, right, Stephen Colbert, MSNBC, or CNN. Now, I personally believe that these commentators can be really intelligent. Some of the stations they're on can be informative. Some are even fascinating, fascinated by biblical teachers. I've heard almost all of them right, reference Jesus in some positive But as far as I can tell, none of them are committed to glorifying God and lifting up the name of Jesus as he is testified to through the scriptures. On the other hand, you should expect me or any other pastor you listen to or follow to open up the scriptures and point you to Jesus and his righteousness. So you shouldn't expect me or any other, other pastor to sound like those commentators who will often protect their political narrative at all costs, even if it men, means for them to bend the truth. You should expect me to thoroughly and thoughtfully teach the scriptures and call a spade a spade. In other words, you shouldn't want your pastor playing partisan politics ever. You should desire that I seek the truth and speak the truth to the best of my ability. So whether you attend this church or any other church, right, don't make your pastor a political prisoner inside their own church by protecting the sacred cow that often becomes our political party or leader of that party. You should want your pastor to speak to individual issues as they show themselves in the scriptures so that they can point out the way of Jesus. By the way, I've got a second here. I think I've got time. Um, I'm a freestyle a little bit. Um, this is, this is actually the beauty of separation of church and state. Church and state is to protect the state and to protect the church. Right? So Christians and our founding fathers came up with this together for this reason. So that any type of person could run for political office. Now then, most people were either deists, uh, which means they vaguely believed in God, or Christians. And then you had churches, and you had a lot of different denominations that were kind of started. And so basically, it protected politicians because you didn't have to belong to Presbyterians, to the Congregationalists, to, uh, uh, to the Anglicans or anything. And you could run for office. It didn't matter. Right? You, and you could run for office. There, you didn't have to be a, a particular sect of the Christian religion to run for office. So it protected them. It also protected the state from being ran by a particular church. It protected the churches in this way. The state couldn't tell the churches what to do. Right? And it still does this. The, the church, on the other hand, could preach and teach whatever it wanted. And for somebody like us, I, you know, we're, we're part of the Church of God movement. We operate a lot like a non-denominational church. 
this sort of thing protects us. Because I'll, I'll pick on some denominations that I kind of like and have even been uh, um, educated by, right? So I don't, I don't want the Presbyterian church running the government because I don't want the Presbyterian church telling me what I can and can't say. And that's what happens when you put the two together. And that's, that, that's the genius of what our founding fathers and what the, early, what the church in our country did. That's the reason that they separated those two things. And if you think they should be together, let me ask you to do this very simple thing. Think about one place in the world right now, one, one country in the world right now where they are together, corrupt, or where the church isn't dead. So just, yeah, you got me there. Right? I'm, I'm just stay there. Just think about those things. I'm going to do a whole series, by the way, in July over how to disagree with one another, and I'm going to talk about these truths are self-evident, and we'll get into this a little bit, right? But I'm not going to play, like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to talk about politics. I just want to talk about truth. You, you won't see me joining, you won't see me telling you that you need to be a part of a particular political party, right? But you'll, you'll see me just teaching the scriptures, and so I want to get back to what I was saying here, because here's why I do this. And here's why I'm teaching that this morning. Not only because do I think the text shows us this, but every pastor worth his or her salt does not believe that the biggest problems in the world can be solved by politics to begin with. Rather, they believe it can be solved by calling people who are far from God to God. Pastors, and I would argue all Christians, should believe that the biggest problem in our world are not political, but they're theological. If you, so if you spend most of your time, I'm just going to challenge you here, if you spend most of your time, and this is hard to do right now, thinking that if all, all our country needs is a particular person or party in power, you're missing out on Jesus' call to be more concerned with building his kingdom. Right? Jesus' first words in his ministry were, were repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he taught that his kingdom isn't established through earthly kingdoms or reign but through the, the individual reigning of Jesus Christ in the hearts of individuals, individual human beings. Now, this being the case, it's not that you shouldn't have political leanings. You should, right? And you should vote. That's a good thing. We want to keep that right in our country. Like, vote. Vote for you, whoever you think is best, whenever you think you need to, right? But ask yourself, is your heart more broken about the decisions that our government makes on a daily basis or whether or not people are coming to the saving faith in Jesus Christ and following him as Lord? What gets, what gets your heart pounding more? What are you really willing to die for? One final thought. If you read through the scriptures, the gospels, it's beyond clear that Jesus nor John the Baptist ever co cozied up to government officials or political parties. John and Jesus simply preached the truth to people who were willing to listen and challenged them to live first and foremost as members of God's kingdom. They, they believed that their message of personal repentance and the power of God to change lives was more transformative than politics. And here's the deal. They both took that belief and that message to the grave. It's clear that John was killed and rejected by government officials for what he believed and what he said. 
Jesus' story is a little different. Jesus was crucified by the Romans, but because his own people wanted him dead. His own people rejected his message. When Pilate presented Jesus to everyone to be spared, to the Jews to be spared, it's the Jews. The people that Jesus was teaching and preaching to and discipling and spending his life with, the people that he was deeply loved, are the ones who chanted, crucify him. So John's message has made me think about my own ministry. And I hope my ministry not only encourages you, but challenges you. I hope that you want to be challenged. This is because all Christian teaching should challenge you to look like an alien in the midst of culture that is confused by Christianity and sometimes even hates it. So, here's the last thing I want to say to you before we pray. Let us all live radically different lives and faithful lives as we seek to follow King Jesus together. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning I ask that you help us to live as aliens and strangers. That you help us to live lives of people who are willing to come to you as people who have come to you first and foremost as as people who have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that it doesn't stop there. I pray that you ask that our hearts continue to be molded by your grace, by your love, by your word. I pray that if you find anything in our lives that are unpleasing to you, Father, that we are able to repent of them. It's really easy sometimes, Jesus, to call you Savior, but it's much more difficult to call you Lord and to come, over, to, to come under what you teach and who you are and who you would have us to be. I pray, Father, that you protect our own church um, from really the political firestorm that's going on. I know that we have people from um, all different walks of life in our church. So I pray, Father, that you not only protect our congregation, but you protect other congregations. Father, from the divisiveness that, can, that is going on in our own country, I pray that you do not allow us to be a part of it, but rather, Father, that we focus on you and solely you and that we are willing to lay down our lives to follow you to live as you would have us to live. Father, we recognize that each and every Sunday that there are people here who do believe and that there are people here who don't believe. I pray that if there's anybody here who doesn't believe and they know, Father, that there's something in their life that isn't right, that they'd simply take the first step to receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior and just repenting of their old life admitting that they have sin and, and receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior, receiving your forgiveness, receiving your grace. Father, we love your son, Jesus, and we pray that you help us that grows this morning as we continue to declare him as Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.